I get to lead worship now over the Word. So will you open up your Bibles with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 3. Last session, so we'll go to the last book of the Bible. We're going to focus in on verses 7 through 13 this afternoon. Revelation 3, 7 through 13. Let me begin by setting the scene for this amazing portion of Scripture. It's around 95 A.D., and the Apostle John is an old man at this point in time, probably the, the only of Jesus' original disciples still living. And he's now exiled on a small, rocky island called Patmos off the coast of modern-day Turkey. And he's there, he says in Revelation chapter 1, because of what he believed and what he taught about Jesus. And one Sunday, he's worshiping, and he hears a voice. And this wasn't just any voice. This is a voice like a trumpet blast, John says. And John turns to the voice, and this is what he sees. This is Revelation 1, 12 through 16. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And I love John's response in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And wouldn't you? And wouldn't I? There standing before John was the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, the risen Savior. And he was all decked out like the King of Kings should be. He was in his royal robe with a golden sash. His hair was white like wool, a visible expression of his infinite wisdom. His eyes were like fire that can see all things. His feet were like bronze, able to crush any enemy. His voice was like the roar of waters, powerful beyond comprehension. A tongue like a sword that searches the heart and judges all rebels. And he was shining as bright as the sun in the glory of his holiness and his sovereignty and his power and his wisdom and his authority. And that risen Savior gives John a command. He says, write. Write down what I'm about to tell you and send it to the churches. And the first thing Jesus does is dictate seven letters directly to the Apostle John for seven specific churches, one of which we'll examine today. Now, all these churches were churches John more than likely knew well. They were all in the vicinity of the island of Patmos, all in present-day Turkey. And that number seven, the fact that there were seven, is significant. 
And we know there's something about that number seven in the book of Revelation. In fact, these seven letters are the first in a series of sevens in Revelation. There's seven, series, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven angels, seven plagues, seven bulls. Seven represents completeness in John's vision. In other words, this is what this means for there being seven churches. These seven churches of Asia Minor represent the totality of Christ's church scattered across the world and across time. Does that make sense? These seven churches represent all churches. All churches all over the world and all churches in all times. That's the significance of these seven churches, these seven lampstands, these seven stars. Now, what that means is that these letters are for us. Today, right now, Jesus Christ dictated these letters for our churches. Yes, they were relevant for the individual churches at that specific time, that specific place. But those seven churches, with all their strengths and with all their weaknesses, are symbolic of all churches in all places at all times. And so these letters are relevant and practical for us. Now, let's not move past this point too quickly. Think about it. What we have in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 are seven letters dictated by Jesus that tells us what he wants his church to be like. What he wants our church to be like. That voice like a trumpet. That voice like roaring waters is the same voice that speaks directly to us here and now. And I cannot think of anything we need more than to hear the voice of Jesus as his church. That's why I'm preaching this particular sermon this afternoon on this particular passage. So that together we can hear the voice of Jesus. Because we need nothing more than to hear the voice of Jesus. His voice comforts weak and wounded hearts. His voice stokes fire in cold hearts. His voice diagnoses our diseases. His voice urges us forward to our heavenly reward. And His voice compels us out into our light-bearing mission to the world. His voice calls us to be the church He longs for us to be. We need nothing more than to hear the voice of Jesus. So, hear His voice now. This is the letter to the church of Philadelphia, the sixth of the seven letters, and it's his letter to us, to our churches. Revelation 3, 17 through 13, 7 through 13. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door, which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. 
Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you because you have kept my word about patient endurance. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. you pray with me? Well, Father, will you grant now that we would hear your thunderous voice speaking, not the voice of a mere man. We long to hear from you. We need to hear from you. We want our churches to burn bright with your glory. We want to reflect your glory to the world around us. We want those who do not now believe in you, who don't trust you, whose eyes are are blinded to your beauty and goodness. We want them to believe and to see. And we want you to use our churches as your instruments, instruments in in your hands to deliver people from the domain of darkness to the kingdom of your beloved son, Jesus Christ. So to that end, will you please send your Holy Spirit now? I need him to preach with spiritual power on my own. I have no power. My words have no power. And we all need you. We all need your spirit to receive your word and understand your word and apply your word. So send him now, we ask, in order to equip us for our mission to burn bright and hot for your glory, for the good of your elect sheep, including those who are not yet part of this fold, and for your great goodness and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this letter begins like the other six letters with a description of Jesus. So, right from the get-go, Jesus says, look at me. Consider me. Get your focus off of all of those things that are competing for your attention and rivet your attention on me. In other words, when you gather church, you gather to behold me. You gather around the written word that points to me, the living word. You gather to rehearse the gospel of which I'm the very center. You gather to sing and worship what you behold. And you gather so that what you behold edifies others. And the description he gives the gathered church is suited to the condition and situation of the church he's addressing. Look at verse 7 again. It says, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now, there, there are three things that Christ wants us to know about himself 
before we consider his call, his commission, my topic, gathering to commission, before we even consider that, he wants us to know these things. Because knowing these things about Jesus, focusing in on them, remembering them, will help us understand just what his commission is in the rest of the letter, will prepare us to receive it, and it will inspire us to obey it. We can only be the kind of church Jesus calls us to be by the grace he gives. And so he calls us right at the beginning to look to him, the fountain of grace. And the first thing he does is he reminds us that he's the Holy One. In other words, he reminds us that he's God. That title, Holy One, is used frequently of God in the Old Testament. So Jesus is saying here what he says outright in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verse 30. I and the Father are one. And as God, he has divine authority. And he has divine power. And that's really important to know because he's going to issue what could be an overwhelming mission to his church. Overwhelming if not for the fact that our God has the authority to issue the command and he has the power to guarantee that the mission is successful. He's the Holy One. Next, he reminds us that he's the true one. He's faithful. He's genuine. He's trustworthy. He's dependable. He's reliable. He's steadfast. He's deserving of all our confidence. And that's important to know. Because Christ is going to go on and make some pretty remarkable promises in this text. And we need to know from the outset that he cannot lie. His promises cannot fail. Because he is God, he has the authority and the power to keep all his promises. He's the Holy One and he's the True One. And third, Jesus is the one who has the key of David, our text says. He opens and no one shuts. He shuts and no one opens. Now, that phrase, key of David, comes from a text in Isaiah chapter 22. A man named Eliakim was made steward over the household of King Hezekiah. And he was given authority over who enters and who does not enter the presence of the king. And so he was given what's called the key of David. And so Eliakim is a foreshadowing of Jesus who now holds the key to God's kingdom. In other words, he has absolute and undisputed authority to admit or exclude anyone. And the reason that the door of God's kingdom is open at all is because of Jesus. Jeff took us there. Nathan took us there. Now for the third time, I take us there. Hebrews 10, 19 through 20 says this. We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. 
by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. There is an open doorway into God's kingdom, into his presence, because on the threshold of that door, there stands a cross. And on that cross, our Savior Jesus died for us. He who knew no sin became sin. The only one who did not deserve to suffer and die did so, so that we would not get the suffering and death we deserve. He took for us the judgment our sin earned. And when he bore our sins in his body on the cross, he bore our sins away. And by his death, he threw open the doorway to God's kingdom. We cannot gather without rehearsing the gospel, can we? And by his resurrection, he took the keys of death and Hades. And the risen Savior, who says in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, now has the key of David as well. He is absolutely sovereign over who is admitted and who is excluded in the presence of the king. He and he alone determines who enters the doorway of salvation into God's kingdom. And when he determines that someone will enter, that door will not be shut. Now, why is that description of Christ so important for the church at Philadelphia and for every church represented here this afternoon? Well, the answer is verse 8 of our text. Look at it with me. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, we learn some things about the church in Philadelphia here, don't we? Jesus says, it's a church of little power. Now, that is not a negative critique of this church. In fact, this is one of only two churches out of the seven that receives no rebuke from Jesus. Just commendation. So, if that's not a rebuke to the church, what does Jesus mean? Well, he means that the church in Philadelphia was kind of like my church. Sovereign Grace Church back home in Bloomington, Minnesota. Maybe like your church as well. It was a small church. I like to say medium-sized church. It's a medium-sized church. Not real impressive to those looking in from the outside. The church probably wasn't exploding with growth. It wasn't overflowing with financial resources. Its influence was unimpressive by human standards. It, it didn't exactly boast a membership of the upper echelon of society. Outward, it had but little power. But for God, thank God, success is not determined by size or by influence 
or by budget or by programs or by place in society. It was okay that this church had but little power because they had a great love for Jesus. And it was a love that was expressed by the fact that they kept my word, Jesus says. They kept the word they gathered around. They weren't just hearers, they were doers of the word. And they did not deny his name. This was an obedient church. This was an obedient church that withstood an onslaught of opposition from those who did not believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But yet they patiently endured, verse 10 says. And what they endured was persecution for the sake of the name. So they were not great. They were not great in power the way the world defines greatness and power. But this church was spiritually powerful. They let their weakness and their deficiencies serve as a door to God's grace and power. And so they obeyed faithfully and they endured patiently. And so Jesus gave this church a commission. And I get that from the beginning of verse 8. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now, we've already considered the doorway to salvation, to God's kingdom that Jesus has authority over. He has the keys. He's the gatekeeper of the kingdom. But what is this door that the Lord opens for the church? Answer, I believe it's an open door to ministry. Specifically to preach the word they've been keeping and to proclaim the name they have not denied. That open door is the great commission to go make disciples of Jesus Christ. It's a doorway of opportunity to proclaim the gospel of Jesus. The good news that he died and rose again to open the gates of heaven. Now, how do I know that? Well, beyond the context of the verse, which I believe makes it plain enough, it's also plain because that image of an open door is used repeatedly in the New Testament to refer to opportunities to advance the gospel. It's almost like a nickname for advancing the gospel. So, Acts 14.27. And when they, Paul and Barnabas, arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. 1 Corinthians 16.9. The Apostle Paul says, For a wide door for effective work has been opened to me. And there are many adversaries. And in Colossians 4, verse 3, Paul gives this prayer request for his gospel ministry. He says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison. John Stott considered all of this and in his commentary on the seven letters wrote this. It seems certain that the door which stood open before the Philippian church was the door of opportunity. Openings for the spread of the gospel. 
So, here's this little, unimpressive church gathered in the midst of a large city full of people hostile to the gospel, and Jesus gives them their commission. I'm opening a door of ministry for you. My word that you've kept, I want you to now go out and preach. And my name that you have not denied, I now want you to go out and proclaim. You've already endured patiently for my name's sake. Now go endure some more. Go advance my gospel in Philadelphia. Now, you better believe that this little church needed to remember that this was the Holy One talking. The one with all power and authority. And you better believe that this little church needed to remember that this was the true one talking. The one worthy of our confidence. And you better believe that they needed to know that Jesus held the key of David and so reigned supreme and sovereign over God's kingdom. And you better believe that we need to remember that too. Because Christ's word to the church in Philadelphia is his word to our churches. It's his word to us. We're called to be a church that burns bright and hot with the glory of God. And and a church that shines with his glory is a church that walks through the open door of gospel ministry to preach the word and proclaim the name. Their call is our call. At the end of every one of our gatherings, at the end of this conference, there's an open door. There's an open door reminding us of our commission. And Jesus really wants us to walk through that door. Especially you, you you who are leaders in your church. He wants us to lead by example here. He wants us to walk through the door, take the opportunity to share the gospel with that friend or neighbor who's been on your heart for months. He wants us to step through the door and take the opportunity to share the gospel one more time with our unbelieving parents, even though they've mocked and ridiculed the name of Jesus. He wants us to step through the door and take every opportunity we have to preach the gospel to our children, though their heart seems so hard. He wants us to walk through the door and put away fear of man and, I don't know, join the street evangelism team. He wants us all to walk through the doorway of gospel opportunity. And so what Jesus does in order to to get us through the door, is to give us three promises. Three precious and very great promises. Three promises from the Holy One who has all authority and power. Three promises from the True One who is ultimately trustworthy. Three promises from the Sovereign One who has the key of David. And it's in these promises that the church, our churches, find their strength to walk through the door of gospel ministry. So let's look at those promises one at a time for the rest of our time this afternoon. So we're just going to feed on the promises of Jesus in order to gain strength to walk through the open door 
of gospel ministry, to fulfill our commission. So we're going to look first at the promise of vindication. That's verse 9. Then we'll consider the promise of protection. That's verse 10. And finally, we'll unpack the promise of security. That's verse 12. First, the promise of vindication. Look at verse 9 again. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet, and they will learn that I have loved you. Now, we've already mentioned that this was a church that was patiently enduring opposition. Now, we learn a little more about where that opposition was coming from mainly. I'm sure it wasn't just the Jews opposing this church. Philadelphia was mainly a pagan city, so we can safely assume that opposition was coming from different directions. But the church in Philadelphia had spiritual power. And the Jewish population in the city, in particular, didn't like it. They resisted the gospel of their their Messiah, Jesus Christ. And they resisted it so passionately that Jesus refers to them as the synagogue of Satan. And the first thing that the Jewish community in this city would have done to Jewish Christians in this church, apparently there were definitely Jewish converts in the church in Philadelphia. The first thing they would do was excommunicate them, kick them out of the synagogue and shut the doors. And the reason they did that was because they believed that salvation was in being from Jewish descent and not in Jesus Christ. They believed that the nations would come to them, that the nations would come to Israel and be saved by bowing down to and becoming part of Israel. But Jesus says, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. In other words, the church is the true Israel. Christians are the true Jews. And some ethnic Jews, Jesus says, will come to realize it. Some of the fiercest opponents of this church will come to humbly recognize the community of Jesus, the church, as the new and true Israel on whom God has set his love. Christians will be vindicated before unbelievers. Now, I believe that there will be a future vindication. Of course, I believe in future vindication. Every knee will bow at the name of Jesus and every tongue will confess him as Lord, Philippians 2.10. But I don't think this is merely a promise of future vindication. I think this is a present promise. I think what Jesus is saying here is that some of the very Jews who hated this church and persecuted this church, and slandered and harassed this church, some of them would be converted and join the church. Some who were once the enemies of the church would come and in all humility express the truth that the church is the beloved bride of the Messiah, and so take their place among the followers of Jesus. The church will be vindicated by present conversions. Now, think about how incredible this is. That that the Jews of this city would be converted. They hated the Christians. And the Messiah, they kicked him out of the synagogue. 
And you might be hated too. It can feel like our churches gather right in the middle of the synagogue of Satan. You know why? Because they do. Our gatherings, our churches, our outposts of the kingdom of light set smack dab in the domain of darkness. They are outposts of the kingdom of God planted in the midst of Satan's kingdom. And so we will be hated as we fulfill our commission. And and it might seem impossible to you that anything could save that friend. You You can't even discuss truth claims with him because he doesn't believe there is truth. How can God save that coworker who is so self-consumed, worshiping at the altar of herself, unaware that there's a world going on around her? How can God save and rescue that family member when they've strayed so far from the fold? You know how? The Holy One, the True One, takes the key of David... And he opens the door of the kingdom for them. That's how. We keep the word. We don't deny the name. We preach the word. We proclaim the name. And Christ ushers people into his kingdom. We, We might be small and insignificant. But we serve a big and mighty Jesus who opens and no one shuts. And so we press on through the door of gospel opportunity. That's the promise of vindication. Vindication through conversions. Christ will save his people and he will use us to get them saved. Next, let's consider the promise of protection. Look at verse 10 again. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance... I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, we know, don't we, that the church and the individuals who make up the church are not kept from trial. Not kept from trial in the sense that we don't experience it. I mean, we sang all about it this morning. We do experience it. The Apostle Paul said in Acts 14.22, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. The church in Philadelphia had patiently endured many tribulations. The promise of Jesus here is not to keep this church from all harm. The promise of Jesus here is to keep us from spiritual harm and apostasy when we find ourselves in the hour of trial. He will sustain us. He will preserve us. He will protect us when we face trials, especially those trials brought on when we obey and walk through the door of gospel opportunity. And walking through that door will bring trial and tribulation. In chapter 1, verse 9 of Revelation, John writes this, I, John your brother, and partner in the tribulation. It's almost like a nickname for the Christian. Your partner in tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on an island called Patmos on account of the word of God 
and the testimony of Jesus. There is tribulation for those in Jesus. John was exiled for walking through the door of gospel opportunity. We're all partners in tribulation on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now, what this specific hour of trial was for this church, I don't know. The tribulation mentioned here seems to be something big. It was going to come to the whole known world at the time. And that that hour of tribulation did come from time to time to the church in Philadelphia. Not just once. When this letter was written, it was the Jews who were opposing the church. Then some other hour of tribulation came. We know from history that the Muslims opposed that church as well. And they still do. But you know what? The city isn't called Philadelphia any longer. It's now Al-Shahir in modern-day Turkey. And there is still a Christian influence in that city. There's still a church. The only one of the seven churches to which John wrote that is still in existence. Christ kept his promise to keep this church through tribulation. And he will keep us as well. We can press on through the door of gospel opportunity, come what may, knowing that whatever does come, Christ will keep us. No matter what our hour of trial entails, no one can snatch us from the almighty hand of Jesus. And no one can separate us from the love of God in Christ. That's the promise of Christ's protection. Not to keep us from tribulation, but to keep us spiritually safe in the midst of tribulation. And finally, let's look at the promise of security. Verse 12 again. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. Now, there's just a cascade of promises of future reward in this verse. Let's, let's look at them one at a time. First, for those who take up the commission and walk through the door of gospel opportunity and preach the word and proclaim the name of Jesus, we will be made a pillar in the temple of God. And temple here is symbolic of God's presence. Later in the book of Revelation, we read that there will be no temple. Only God himself. And we will be like pillars in the presence of God. We will one day be established in God's presence. To be a pillar is to have a position of stability and permanence. Secure forever in the presence of God. That is a precious and very great promise to a church full of elect exiles. That's what Peter calls us. 1 Peter 1.1 We have no permanent place in this world and in this life. We are resident aliens. It means that this earth in its present condition is not our home. It doesn't feel like home. At least it shouldn't feel like home. It doesn't function like home. And so when we walk through the door of gospel opportunity, 
we should not be surprised when we're treated like strangers and exiles in this world. The world will hate us. The world will not understand us. Family, friends, co-workers will disown us. They'll see us as freaks. Why should they treat us any differently from Jesus? This wasn't his home either. And he was treated like a stranger and an exile on a planet he created. He was criticized and mocked. His own family thought he was crazy. His friends denied and even betrayed him. He was arrested and unjustly delivered a death sentence. Talk about tribulation. He was in exile. And we too are exiles. But not forever. We will one day be at home in the presence of our God forever. Pillars in his temple. And Jesus says we will never go out of it. Always at home with Jesus. When we get there, we'll have some names written on us. We'll have the name of God inscribed on us. To have a name written is to belong to the one who writes the name. We will fully belong to God. We belong to God now. But then we will know what it means to fully belong to God. We might be exiles and outcasts because of Christ here and now. But we are God's own possession. And we will have the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, written on us. We'll be full citizens of that city. We may not fit in in this culture, in this world, in this synagogue of Satan. We may feel like we really don't fit in anywhere on this earth, but we will fit in in that city. Full citizens of that kingdom. And we'll have another name written on us. The new name of Christ. Now, We suffer ridicule and opposition and even persecution for that name. But then we will have Jesus' new name inscribed on us. In other words, we will know more of Christ. We will enjoy more of his presence than ever before when he writes that name on us. We will see a fuller vision of Christ's beauty and his glory. Whatever we now know of Christ, whatever we enjoy of him, whatever love we experience will be multiplied more times than we can imagine. And that's what we want for those living In the domain of darkness, isn't it? It's what we want for our friends, for our family, for our loved ones, for people we come in contact with every single day. That's why we walk through the door of gospel opportunity. We want to see people, people we love, transferred to the kingdom of God's Son. If people only understood what Jesus promises here, they would do anything to receive the fulfillment of these promises. Everyone desires life and to rejoice in living life. And that's what God promises. We have what everyone in the world desires. Never-ending happiness. 
Not, not, not merely forgiveness of sin and peace with Christ, as wonderful as those are, but we have Christ himself. And like Nathan told us, in his presence there is fullness of joy and pleasures forever. How can we not offer it? How can we not preach the word and proclaim the name? And so burn bright and hot as a church with God's glory the way Jesus intends. How can we not gather to behold glory? How can we not gather around the word and gather to remember the gospel and gather to sing about the Savior at the center of that gospel? And how can we not gather to edify one another? And then, how can we not step through the open door of gospel opportunity in obedience to our commission. Let's pray. Well, Father, give us the grace to walk through the door of gospel ministry that you open to us. Trusting that all your promises to us are yes and amen in Christ. Give us the grace we need to keep your word and to not deny Christ's name and to patiently endure whatever you've ordained for us to endure, knowing that you'll keep us. And Father, may we see kingdom fruit as we fulfill our commission. May the sovereign one who holds the key of David open the doors of salvation wide. Give us conversions. Save sinners. Bring revival. Use us. Use our churches. For the everlasting, ever-increasing joy of your people, we pray. And for your eternal honor and glory, we pray. And in Jesus' name, amen.